This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Coming up on today's show, whatever tricks Trump may use to remove Robert Mueller, they will not shield him from accountability. That's what Elizabeth Holtzman says. She's a former member of Congress from New York who won national attention for her work on the House Judiciary Committee during Watergate. Also, you've probably had this debate with your friends. Do we want Donald Trump to resign or be impeached, which would leave us with Mike Pence in charge? Would Pence be better or worse than Trump? Joan Walsh has been thinking about this too, and she's got some interesting evidence and an original analysis for us later in the show. But first, DACA. Early Tuesday morning, Trump tweeted that he was ending DACA, the Obama executive action that shields young undocumented immigrants from deportation. And then Attorney General Jeff Sessions formally announced the move to shift the responsibility for the immigration issue to lawmakers. DACA, quote, is being rescinded, Sessions told reporters, calling the program, quote, an open-ended circumvention of immigration laws and an unconstitutional use of executive authority. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation, author of the new book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. It was published last week by Nation Books. John, welcome to the program, and thanks for coming into our studio in L.A. today. I had no idea you had such glamorous studios. (laughs) I wish wish people out there in America could see. Well, DACA, what is going to happen now that it's been thrown to Congress. Can Congress save at least the current DACA kids, the dreamers who are here now? Yes, it's possible. Uh, This is a a remarkable period in regard to all these issues because uh, DACA actually moved to a point of being relatively accepted by a lot of Republicans uh, and certainly the overwhelming majority of Democrats. And so uh, moving it to Congress does open up possibilities. Even Paul Ryan has said some things that were at least a a bit more sympathetic uh, than what you're hearing out of the Trump circle. And in addition to that, you have people like Lindsey Graham and others who are, you know, quite open to working on this. What I think you end up with, though, is a complexity. By overturning the Obama order, then you end up in a situation where Congress has to formally act. And then, of course, formal action may take you back toward Trump. So you end up in in a real mess of a situation. Things are possible. It ought to be fought. It should also be fought in the courts and, and will be. But 
the story isn't done. I guess that's the best way to say it. And this becomes perhaps one of the most important periods because the dreamers have done an amazing job of communicating and of, of putting these issues on the table. As they continue to do so, the effectiveness with which they do so could well define how this thing ends up. We don't always say that in politics. Sometimes you can deliver a great message and not, not succeed. Here is one where there's enough critical mass there that a really impassioned campaign, a lot of messaging at this point, has the potential to avoid some of the tremendous damage that Trump and Sessions would like to advance. So on the one hand, we have the dreamers. And on the other hand, we have, as you've said, not just Trump, but Jeff Sessions. He's the point man who's going to be representing the Trump administration on this. I believe our attorney general is one of the most dangerous people in America, profiled in your new book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. Are you surprised that Jeff Sessions would call DACA, quote, an open-ended circumvention of immigration laws and an unconstitutional use of executive authority? No, I'm not, uh, because this is where Jeff Sessions has been coming from for quite a while. In the book, I start out with a question, what can be said about Jeff Sessions that hasn't already been said by Dr. David Duke? Aha. And it notes that uh, he is very, very popular with what is referred to as the alt-right, with hard right-wing folks who uh, have some horrific opinions not just about immigration but about a lot of other issues. Sessions brings this part of the Republican Party into the administration. It's one of the reasons why, even though he's wrangled with Trump, he hasn't been pushed away. And, and that is because Trump, Stephen Miller, and other people in the White House, certainly Bannon now outside the White House, but still very influential, clearly recognize that this is a portion of their constituency, this, this impassioned anti-immigrant community. They've nurtured this issue up. It wasn't just nurtured up by Trump. It was, it's been built up over the years, has deep roots. It is very xenophobic. It is very very much grounded in a, an analysis that they've been building up, particularly on right-wing talk radio now, for years. Sessions is deep into this, and it's an interesting thing. Sessions was essentially ruined politically back in the 1980s. He was nominated for a federal judgeship by Ronald Reagan. The Senate rejected that because of horrifying evidence that Sessions had prosecuted people who were registering African-American voters in Alabama it was such a damning indictment of him that a Republican-controlled Senate didn't let him move up to the federal judgeship. He came back and reconstituted himself in, in Alabama. He softened some of his rhetoric and some of his style on race issues, although in the book I detail that there are many people who have watched him over the years who are still completely skeptical of him and deeply troubled by him. But it's interesting because at that point he pivoted into immigration issues. And for the better part of 20 years, he's been a virulent, almost unimaginably outspoken foe of immigrant rights. And when he endorsed Trump for president, the first senator to endorse Trump for president, that was a critical step because it brought a sector of the hard right into alignment with Trump. And the bridge person there being Stephen Miller, a longtime Sessions aide who is now was on the Trump campaign, now is in the Trump White House. All I'm going to say is there's no surprise here at all. The fact that he is out front central on DACA is an extension of where he's been at for a very, very long time. And people need to understand that because they need to understand that Jeff Sessions is always about vilifying some group. 
that's how he plays politics. And I would argue, you, you do correctly point out that I say he's one of the most dangerous people in America. I would really argue that at the Department of Justice, having somebody like this in charge very possibly makes him the, the, the top contestant for the most dangerous person in America title. You mentioned uh, Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, Congressman from Wisconsin. He is one of the most dangerous people in America profiled in your new book, Horseman of the Trumpocalypse. I was a little surprised to see that he has supported the Dreamers in the past and today said that he has the energy to try to work out a congressional resolution that would permit the current Dreamers holding DACA status to maintain that status and avoid deportation when Trump uh, ends this program. Why is uh, Paul Ryan good on DACA? Well, we'll see how good he is. Paul Ryan often says a, a lot of somewhat appealing things, and then when you get down into the details, it can be very unsettling. This is one of the things I go back with him again and again on. Paul Ryan is somebody who, in my view, is, was more responsible for Trump becoming president than anybody else. Paul Ryan did, did something during the campaign. He would say when Trump did something horrible, well, I really, I wouldn't say it that way, which is, what does that mean, right? But then he'd also say sometimes, I disagree with Trump. I'm not where Trump is on this issue. But he would always cap the conversation by saying, however, if he's the party's nominee, I'll support him. Similarly, since Trump became president, he has occasionally wrangled with Trump. They've had occasional minor differences. And yet at the end of the day, he always says, well, but, you know, we can work with him. He's a Republican president. It's better to have him than the alternatives. The end result is that Paul Ryan has defined out the definition of the Republican Party as a, you know, very, you know, I think he's extremely right wing, but as somebody who's treated as kind of the mainstream of the current Republican Party, he's extended the definition out to include Donald Trump and yeah. even Jeff Sessions. Yeah. And so when he says good things, the next question is, will he do good things? Because he seems to be very, very concerned about his own image and it's how much uh, of that energy he'll expend. If he tries to do something, uh, it's got to be good enough, strong enough that the Democrats would be supportive. Right. At least yeah. what you've described and probably mm -hmm. more. But he will have, the, you know, some parts of his own caucus resisting him. Uh, it's a question of how Trump relates to it all. And so I would say that this is a, another challenge put on Paul Ryan's lap. And the fact of the matter is that during the Trump presidency so far, when he's faced challenges like health care and other issues, he frankly hasn't done very well. Um, and so uh, for the Dreamers, again, I would suggest grassroots mobilization, communication, activism, building out alliances is more important than counting on Paul Ryan. Okay. I've con you've convinced me. The, the actual status of the Dreamers at this point is a lot more complicated than I thought it was going to be because Trump did not move to start deporting them tomorrow. The administration will continue to renew two-year work permits as they expire, but will stop accepting new applications. So that's a kind of a strange Trump compromise. We usually don't think of him as a kind of compromising kind of person. And under the administration plan, none of this is going to happen until March 6th, which is what, six, five, mm -hmm. six months away. And after March 6th, several thousand people a week will begin losing their legal right to work in the United States. And the program will be fully phased out under Trump's new executive order in March 2020. Congress could 
change this. Um, it's interesting that Trump somehow wanted to kind of split the difference here between his base, whom he promised he would get rid of DACA, mm -hmm. and his more recent statement that, oh, gee, these kids are great. Yeah, I, look, I think that, that this is one of the complexities with Donald Trump. You cannot look at Donald Trump simply as Donald Trump. You have to look at him as part of a now a machine, an, an administration. And there are moving parts in that machine. There are clearly some people in the administration who literally are saying, why would you do this? <laughs> what is the point of this? What value comes from it? There are other people who say this is what put us in at least the Republican nomination mm -hmm. and become central to our politics. And so sometimes they're unexpected, the, the way the coalitions line up and who ends up where, political people versus uh, family members. It's possible that Trump might have avoided this issue if he, if he was in the, the circle of certain folks within the administration. But Jeff Sessions didn't get forced to do that press conference. Jeff Sessions has made this stuff central to his Senate career and to his tenure at Department of Justice. Stephen Miller, who I keep reminding people, is still in the White House. And, uh, you know, look, Bannon left, but I think Bannon's a strategist. He left to do other things for probably related to the administration. Gorka left because Gorka really needed to go. But Miller's still there. And Miller is the deepest connection to Sessions. He's a longtime Sessions aide. He's also somebody who, by all accounts, from a very young age, has really, really believed in this stuff and this, this immigrant bashing, this immigrant criticism. And so I think that they got the upper hand, but even Trump realized it's not this – is, this is shaky stuff. And where I suspect we end up with is much of the action moving to Congress and the possibility that some compromises worked out. But I would be really careful about that word compromise. And even in what Trump's talking about here, look, these are human beings. To make their circumstance so uncertain and to have these weird, you know, like this date, everything could change, that date, everything could change, uh, and have it be up in the air, is a, it's a terrible thing to do to people. And I think that there, there needs to be a resolution. But if that resolution is some sort of compromise, uh, I would just warn that, that, you know, Bruce Coburn had a pretty good line in one of his songs, the trouble is with normal is it always gets worse. Mm. Uh, when the Trump administration starts with compromises on, you know, how people are treated as regards whether they can stay in the country or not, whether they can work, all these issues, you have to keep an eye on the possibility that for political reasons, among others, they go to a very draconian place. John Nichols, his new book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. John, thanks for coming in today. It's an honor to be with you. Whatever tricks Trump may use to remove Robert Mueller, they will not automatically shield him from accountability. That's what Elizabeth Holtzman says. She's a former member of Congress from New York who won national attention for her work on the House Judiciary Committee during Watergate. She was subsequently elected District Attorney of Kings County, which is Brooklyn. She's a Harvard Law graduate, author of the book, The Impeachment of George W. Bush, A Practical Guide for Concerned Citizens, and she's a contributor to The Nation magazine. It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Elizabeth Holtzman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for saying that, John. It's a pleasure to be on your program. 
Well, we've worried for a long time that Trump could fire special counsel Robert Mueller or he could pardon everyone being investigated by Mueller, which would end those investigations. But now we have news that Mueller has teamed up with the attorney general of New York State, Eric Schneiderman, on their investigation into Paul Manafort and his financial transactions, and that Mueller and Schneiderman have shared information and discussed legal strategy. What is the significance of this cooperation in view of our concerns about Trump firing Mueller or pardoning his targets? Well, I think it shows several things. It shows, first of all, that Mueller is a a very smart prosecutor because Uh, He's saving resources or taking advantage of the work of other prosecutors. But it also shows that Mueller is a very smart fellow, not only with regard to how to prosecute a case, but how to deal with the um, what you might want to call outside interference. It wasn't too long ago that President Trump said he had complete pardon power. It's not at all clear that what he meant by this, was he trying to send a signal to people who were about to testify, his son uh, and uh, some uh, other uh, campaign associates who were going to testify before Congress, was he sending them a signal to Stonewall? Was he sending the signal that he could pardon them and they wouldn't have to tell the truth? It's unclear what that was about, but there's no question that as a result of that, statement by President Trump that his pardon powers were complete, that people became extremely concerned that Trump himself would issue pardons to himself and to all his associates in connection with the Russia investigation. So Mueller, whether he intended it or not, is sending a very strong signal to people who are subjects or targets of the investigation into possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. And the message is the president can't exonerate you just by a pardon because the president's power to pardon is limited to federal offenses and it does not cover state offenses. So what Mueller is saying is, uh, yes, Mr. Manafort, uh, maybe President Trump will pardon you, but that's not going to get you off the hook because you can be uh, theoretically be prosecuted under state laws. And by the way, looking for a state pardon Trump associates would have to be looking to Governor Andrew Cuomo for a pardon, and the likelihood that he would grant one is probably zero to minus. <laughs> okay. So the the feds can prosecute cri- some crimes that state attorney generals can't, of course. Correct. Uh, starting with crimes committed outside the state of New York, what else can Mueller investigate that New York State Attorney General Schneiderman cannot investigate? Well, Mueller can investigate the firing of Comey, for example. <laughs> for example. Uh, that's a federal, uh, that was the firing of a federal official and uh, an obstruction of justice, potentially. That's something that Eric Schneiderman wouldn't have the jurisdiction to investigate. On the other hand... It may be that Eric Schneiderman's investigations into financial activities by Mr. Manafort could lay the basis for prosecution of Mr. Manafort on state charges, but that might be sufficient to get Mr. Manafort to talk about what he knows about the Trump campaign, Trump himself, and collusion with Russia. 
that even if the state charges, assuming there is a basis for them, uh, don't relate to any federal offense, they could become a basis for putting pressure on Trump campaign officials to cooperate with law enforcement authorities. You uh, mentioned Trump's firing of FBI Director Comey as a potential obstruction of justice. Uh, The Wall Street Journal is uh, reporting that Trump's lawyers have filed papers uh, arguing that the president has the authority to hire and fire, and therefore it could not be an obstruction of justice for the president to fire the director of the FBI. Uh, You're a a former uh, prosecutor. Could that be correct? Well, I think the intent is going to be critical in that matter. I mean, an obstruction of justice requires a corrupt intent, and if the purpose of the firing is to stop an investigation, then that corrupt intent may well exist, and that may be a basis for the prosecution. In addition, and this is very important, even though the president may have the full authority to hire and fire anybody, if he's doing it for the purpose of obstructing an investigation, that becomes an impeachable offense. Remember, one of the grounds for the impeachment of Richard Nixon, the vote for impeachment by the House Judiciary Committee, was his was Nixon's firing or causing the firing of the special prosecutor, yeah. Archibald Cox, who was closing in on him, wanted White House tapes that could reveal whether Nixon himself was involved in the cover-up. So, yes, Mr. Nixon may have had full authority, constitutional authority. I'm not conceding that, but let's even assume he did. There's no, that was a basis for his, uh, the vote for impeachment. So, you know, just uh, claiming that the president has constitutional powers to act doesn't mean that his use of those powers can't be an abuse of power. And uh, firing Comey in order to stop an investigation if it's done for that purpose, could be the basis of an impeachment as well as the basis of a prosecution. Well, thank you for taking us back to the House Judiciary Committee, which, of course, you were a key member of that committee when it drafted articles of impeachment against Nixon. The articles of impeachment covered uh, obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and contempt of Congress. I wonder if you have any uh, advice or wisdom to offer to our current House Judiciary Committee. Well, I think the House Judiciary Committee has a major responsibility to protect the country from uh, the destruction of its democratic and constitutional system. That's what impeachment is about. The framers of the Constitution, they may not have known names of the presidents who would abuse power, but they knew it could happen because they were wise people and they'd seen how monarchs and other executives had abused power. So they created an impeachment process to protect our democracy. And that's really what's at stake when a president, as uh, we are seeing to some extent now with Mr. Trump, when a president takes the law into his own hands and puts himself above the rule of law, We cannot have a president decide who is going to investigate him and whether or not he's he's committed a crime. There is a rule of law. Whether you're president of the United States or a beggar on the street, there's a rule of law that applies to everyone equally. Uh, And the minute we abandon that, we're on the way way to dictatorship, fascism, and loss of our basic freedoms. So 
the House Judiciary Committee, there was a very interesting article in a kind of middle-of-the-road blog called Lawfare just a few days ago saying that the House Judiciary Committee should commence impeachment proceedings or a pre- impeachment inquiry because of the abuses of power that have taken place, uh, not just the abuse with regard to uh, the Russia investigation, but the abuse of power with respect to um, the pardon of um, Sheriff Arpaio. And uh, all of these things should be looked at, but I, I just want to bring people's memory if they if they were alive during Watergate or cause them to reflect on this point, that impeachment took place in the end, uh, not because Congress said we've got to remove the president, because the, but because the American people said enough is enough, and we're not a banana republic, and the president can't decide who's going to prosecute him, and the president is not above the law. And that's what forced Congress to act. So you have to have egregious acts by a president. We have some very egregious acts here. And you have to have the American people saying, this is not tolerable in a democracy. And the minute you have those two things, the president needs to be held accountable, and the House Judiciary Committee needs to be alert to that. Of course, the Robert Mueller's investigation is just getting started, and we don't know much about what he has found. But what, what to you, are the most important elements that could lead to uh, impeachable offenses here? Obviously, firing of Comey looks like an obstruction of justice, especially since he said in his interview with Lester Holt that it was about the Russia thing. Beyond that, what's at the top of the list of what are the most significant, the most dangerous things that Trump has done to endanger our democracy? Well, for example, misleading the American people about the nature of his son's meeting with the Russians, rather than making a clean breast of it and telling what happened, he played a key role in trying to mislead the American people. I think the efforts to stymie the Mueller investigation are also very serious. For example, the efforts, and we don't know whether this is really, where it's speculative, uh, really what was behind uh, what was in Trump's mind, but all the attacks on on Attorney General Sessions, were those attacks designed to get Sessions to resign and allow Trump to appoint uh, a new Attorney General who could remove Mueller? We don't know that, but that needs to be looked at because that could be grounds for um, possible obstruction of justice or impeachment. So those are, I would say, very serious things. That and the attacks on Mueller himself, you know, saying that the Russia investigation is a hoax, it's fake news. I mean, we have one of the most highly respected law enforcement officials in the country who's assembled a team of highly respected prosecutors to look into this and to call it a fake, a hoax, fake news, um, a witch hunt, and so forth. It just flies in the face of reality and is an attempt to an attempt to undermine the investigation, which is not what a president should be doing. And he's treading on very dangerous grounds, Mr. Trump, by emulating Richard Nixon. Elizabeth Holtzman, you can read her article, Trump Messes with the Russia Investigation at His Own Peril at TheNation.com. Elizabeth Holtzman, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you.
you've probably had this debate with your friends. Do we want Donald Trump to resign or be impeached, which would leave us with Mike Pence in charge? Do we think Pence would be better or worse than Trump? Joan Walsh has been thinking about this, too. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. She wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. We reached her today in New York City. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Happy to be with you. Well, remind us what each side says in this debate about who is worse and who it would be easier for us to defeat. There's two ways to come at this. So you can say that he's worse. Uh, which I do uh, in the nation, but you can also say that it's okay if he's a temporary president because he will be easier to defeat, as I pretty much do. I mean, I basically believe that Trump has to be impeached for many objective reasons that have nothing to do. I don't really want to think about it in terms of uh, of the politics. I mean, that's, that's the job of Republicans. Um, you know, I think uh, the pardon of Joe Arpaio saying that law enforcement is is exempt from the review of the of the court system is just such a threat to the constitution and it's certainly not the first thing so unequivocally he should be impeached regardless of the political consequences but when you break it down i'm of the belief that although pence is you know more politically experienced more politically savvy He's also less politically uh, dangerous uh, and charismatic. He was in big trouble when Trump picked him to be his running mate. Remember, he was behind in the polls, running for re-election. He had really distinguished himself as a total ideologue uh, and not a very effective governor. So I just would not fear him as much as I fear even a wounded Trump who can nonetheless whip up his base and perhaps surprise us again. I don't know. I mean, I think I think he uh, would go down to defeat in 2020 if he wasn't impeached. But I would just like I would like it all to happen sooner. And after what we went through last year, you know, none of us can be certain about about any political outcome. Well, the great thing about your piece on is Pence worse in the nation is you don't focus on the abstract issues. You've brought some actual evidence to bear on this question by looking at what Pence says about why he supports Trump's call to keep Confederates' monuments standing. It's a small thing. Lots of stuff has happened since then, but it's very revealing and significant, at least the way you analyze it. So what exactly did Mike Pence say? Oh, yes. What exactly did he say? He said, you know, when I walked back in 2010 across the Edmund Pettus Bridge with John Lewis arm in arm, and we remembered Bloody Sunday and the extraordinary progress of the civil rights movement, I can't help but think that rather than pulling down monuments, as some are wont to do, rather than tearing down monuments that have graced our cities all over this country for years, we ought to be building more monuments. So, gee, Mike Pence walked with John Lewis. that and Arm and, in arm. And, and isn't that a good thing? Doesn't that mean we would want, prefer him as president to Donald Trump? I mean, you know, it, it, it's window dressing. It didn't, you know, change his position, I don't think, on racial issues or, uh, you know, stop him from joining the, the becoming vice president to the man running the most divisive, one of the most divisive campaigns in American history. I'm not too reassured by it, uh, John, especially when I see the way uh, he turns it into political capital for himself. 
and to oppose John Lewis's own stance on this issue. He's a, John Lewis is a proponent of taking down these, these statues. To say these statues have graced these cities for many years, I don't think African-Americans would use the term graced our city. <laughs> I have to agree uh, with you on that. Let's connect the dots here. What does he use this carefulness to accomplish? Well, I think he's careful. He, you know, he, he wants to preserve you know, a veneer of being a reasonable uh, Republican with uh, some concern for racial issues. But then he turns around and uses that modicum of political capital to defend the racism of Donald Trump. So, you know, I don't think it makes him better than Trump. You could arguably say it makes him worse. Let's move to the big picture here about Pence versus Trump and who we would rather uh, have as president. People say, a lot of my friends say, Pence would be more effective as president in achieving the Republican uh, goals. Certainly, the Koch brothers thought so. Jane Mayer of the New Yorker said on this podcast that Pence was the number one choice of the Koch brothers, who, as we know, didn't want uh, Trump. They thought Pence would be more effective in getting the traditional Republican agenda through the Republican Congress. As you have said, he would probably, he would also be easier to defeat. You pointed out that in Indiana, uh, where he was running for re-election for governor when when um, Trump tapped him to be vice presidential candidate, we saw headlines like Trump, this is one is from Politico, Trump flirts with unpopular Pence. Some home state Republicans would be glad to see the Indiana governor abandon his reelection bid for a VP slot. So how do we balance these two things? I just don't see how he's more effective than Trump when Trump really made him his point person on Obamacare, uh, ACA repeal and, and quote, replace. Uh, he couldn't get it done. Uh, you know, I don't know that he would have, you know, he'll, he'll probably be his point person on tax reform because he's more knowledgeable and he knows he certainly knows. Uh, the House better, and to some extent the Senate as well. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, another problem, it's not merely Pence or Trump's lack of, of, of uh, dexterity, uh, legislative dexterity. It's also that the, the Republican Party is no longer a governing party. It can't be taken seriously. There are the splits within the party are almost as big as splits between uh, them and, and the Democratic Party. You know, there are still, there's still a core, not nearly enough, but there are still uh, Republican senators and uh, House members who see a role for government, uh, who see a role for government to help in the provision of health of health care, uh, who did not want to see Medicare uh, slashed, either the ACA expansion or the, you know, the, the longer term uh, slashing of the core program that was proposed. You know, I, I think there will be similar differences in tax reform. Uh, so he's failed as well as Trump. I think that's quite a good argument. Joan Walsh, her piece, Why Mike Pence is Worse Than Donald Trump, appears at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thank you, John. Talk to you soon. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. 
Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.